This is the Eye on Potatoes, brought to you by the National Potato Council. The Eye is the place to tune in for conversations with growers and thought leaders on advocacy, production, and all things potatoes. Now, here's your host, Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone. It's time for the Eye on Potatoes podcast. I'm Lane Nordland. And across agriculture, collaboration is key to getting a successful crop put up and also key in negotiating and creating effective policy that impacts the United States potato industry. Today we'll be talking about collaborations through coalitions and how that work goes towards paving a bright future for the U.S. potato industry. Joining us here today is CEO of the National Potato Council, Cam Quarles, and once again, Randy Russell joins us with the Russell Group. Uh, First off, Cam, uh, how's your day going out in the Beltway? Doing great, Lane. Great to great to talk to you. We've got a little unusual for DC. We have low humidity today. It's been a couple of great, great summer days. I think it's a little different than the heat wave that a lot of the folks in the rest of the country has been experiencing. No, definitely a lot cooler probably than the hundred degrees plus we saw in parts of Montana and other uh, potato planting regions. Randy, for yourself, uh, how's your day shaping up? You know, it's it's, it's really great. It's uh, Washington finally. It seems to be about the last area to open up, but it's uh, open it up. Uh, people are uh, uh, going back and visiting the hill. Cam was up there yesterday, and I know we'll talk about that in a minute, and uh, started to do some in-person meetings and uh, lunches and uh, business meetings. So it, it, it's great. It's starting to uh, feel a tad bit, a tad bit like normal. Well, as things do get back to normal, I know talking to folks, especially from over in western Montana uh, this past week while I was on the road, it sounded like uh, rain had deterred their uh, spring planting just a bit on those seed potatoes, but uh, they were pretty happy with uh, getting the crop in the ground. And as uh, we turn our attention and our conversation to efforts out in Washington, D.C., on behalf of the nation's potato producers, uh, Randy, the Russell Group does, in fact, manage several important agriculture coalitions and having collaboration and these opportunities for groups to come together is so vital in creating policy and advocacy on behalf of agriculture producers. Now, one of those coalitions is the Coalition to Promote U.S. Ag Exports, the Product Labeling Coalition, and the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance. Can you talk us through the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance and how it got started and why it's so important for agriculture producers and the industries all together? Sure. Uh, So let me go back a little bit in time here, just a level set for everybody listening. About 18 months ago, uh, we were approached by some groups, including the Environmental Defense Fund and some others, about possibly putting together uh, a broad-based value chain uh, alliance representing growers and, and ranchers, um, the folks in the retail business, folks in the environmental community, the conservation community, the processing community, crop insurance, credit, et cetera. So we started off and we uh, ended up with four co-chairs of this group, uh, the National Farmers Union, the American Farm Bureau Federation, uh, the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives and the Environmental Defense Fund. And their CEOs are our co-chairs of the group. And then we uh, have, over time, built out a steering committee that has 24 members and uh, includes all the major grower groups, um, including the National Potato Council uh, and many other grower organizations, and also others in the conservation, environmental, crop insurance, farm credit, 
community. The purpose behind this is pretty simple. When we did climate legislation back in 2009, the so-called cap and trade, which uh, fortunately fell apart on its own weight because it was a top-down, heavy-handed government approach to dealing with climate, uh, the agriculture community had no seat at the table. They weren't invited. And in fact, it was more about what was going to be done to them than and them actually being an active participant uh, in the dialogue. <clears throat> and, you know, since that time, over the last 11 or 12 years, a lot has changed. Consumers uh, in the marketplace uh, are demanding more uh, in terms of what the carbon footprint and the environmental Im- impact is of products in the marketplace. You're seeing the investment community and investors, shareholders uh, asking that companies be more responsible from a sustainability perspective. Even farmers' attitudes, Lane, are changing. There was an Iowa poll out uh, not too long ago that showed, you know, uh, about 80 percent of farmers in Iowa said that climate was an issue. And over half of them had said they experienced the impacts of climate on their own farming operation. So clearly things have changed and changed fairly dramatically in the last uh, 11 or 12 years. And the whole purpose of our coalition, very frankly, is to make sure the entire value chain has a seat at the table as Congress and the administration debates climate and make sure that we come up with voluntary approaches that incentivizes producers to build on their environmental and and sustainability practices and make sure it's done in a practical way um, that meets both climate objectives, but also farm income objectives. Now, Cam, from the National Potato Council's perspective, how important is it for this uh, collaboration and also to have one more voice uh, hitting the hill in Washington, D.C. on behalf of your membership? Yeah, I I think it's incredibly important, Lane. And Randy and his team have done, I think, a remarkable job with all of the the participants in the coalition. Um, the, The entire thrust of this exercise is is really to to encourage voluntary practices by producers as opposed to what randy was mentioning back in 2009 i i vividly remember that entire exercise and it was not fun to go through it 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 was really a function of uh, uh uh colin peterson who was the the um leader of the House Ag Committee at that time was the one who kind of dealt uh, agriculture into the to, to the discussion at the 11th hour. Um, this time, just entirely different. You've got a real bipartisan uh, agreement that these practices are going to be voluntary. They're going to encourage producers to, to take them, but they're not going to be government mandates. And I think that's the exact right one for really getting some productive energy behind climate change. Um, it Clearly, the consumer base has changed. Uh, a lot of the shareholders of these companies are, are demanding action on all things climate and sustainability. Not coming at it with a heavy hand, I think, is really imperative. And that's, that's, that's really what Randy's constructed here with this coalition. Now, as you mentioned, looking back uh, to uh, uh, the Obama administration and their initial push, 
uh, around that 2009 year to, to really look at climate change and maybe implement uh, some policy. Uh, Cam, as you mentioned, there has been some changes with players in the game and some of their objectives. But when we look at how some of the other geopolitical um, uh, production-wise, how, how has some of the issues changed since 2009 when it comes to the discussion of climate? And how is that discussion becoming more viable to producers? How are they maybe looking at it differently? Uh, I'll, I'll I think I'll let Randy answer that one first, and then I'll, I'll kind of throw my, my two cents in, if you don't mind. No, that's perfect. Well, Cam, you know, as, as Cam alluded to, look, there's just a lot that has changed in the last dozen years. And I, I think if you if you take a step back and you look at the uh, uh, what types of greenhouse gas emissions are actually coming out of our economy in the United States and who contributes what, uh, U.S. EPA says about 10 percent of the total greenhouse gas emissions are attributable, attributable to agriculture. That includes both uh, the production side on farming, row crop, as well as livestock. Um, and I, I really think what's changed, Lane, is the fact that that agriculture, it, uh, you can view it one of two ways. We, we can either be viewed as a contributor to greenhouse gas emissions or rather as a key part of the solution. And I think that's what's changed. I think back in 2009 on the cap and trade approach, it was a regulatory approach. Some people were talking about taxing carbon, et cetera. And I think today what people realize is that both economically and politically, agriculture uh, can be a great source of capturing carbon and uh, improving soil health and improving water quality and is a key part of the solution to this. And the way to do that is to incentivize growers and do it on a voluntary basis rather than by taxing or through some cap and trade program or through some regulatory program. I think it's also a recognition line of the fact that agriculture punches above its weight class politically. And, uh, you know, the National Potato Council is a prime example of that. And the entire industry as a whole politically uh, does much better than probably uh, uh, its representation in terms of just straight rural districts. And therefore, it is a key uh, constituency to get any kind of climate legislation uh, enacted in Congress. Um, and so I think it's those two factors uh, that are significant in terms of changing the attitude uh, towards climate debate. Cam? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. And I'll, I'll just add from uh, from purely a focus on the potato industry. Um, I, I think our our industry has become much more sensitive to this issue and really has put their money where their mouth is. You, you look at things like the Potato Sustainability Alliance, um, which is dedicated to going out and quantifying uh, practices that relate to uh, sustainability broadly, but with a specific focus on, on climate. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's a re, that reflects that um, the growers, as well as all of the allied organizations in our industry, take um, climate more. I, I, think it's, I think it's only grown in seriousness since 2009, and they're trying to, trying to tell the, the, what we believe is a very positive story about the potato industry's uh, uh, ability to impact 
climate. They want to tell that in a way that has some real evidence and science and metrics behind it rather than uh, just a, a, a bunch of talking points that really aren't backed up by anything. So um, it, it does feel different this time around. I, you know, looking back to 2009, uh, Randy was mentioning it was this, you know, effectively a tax on carbon. It was really, and, and, and which is exactly right, and it was a tax on energy. No one got a worse deal in that than the specialty crop industry because the moment you you harvest our, our crops, we have an outsized energy draw. You're either refrigerating uh, our product in a in a packing house, in a storage facility, in a ship going somewhere, in a rail car. Um, it, it, we, we just we we were the ones who were, were really uh, really got hammered in that equation. So th- this what we're talking about today is a much different equation for uh, for agriculture. Now, as Washington, D.C. opens up and there'll be more opportunity for uh, NPC members to travel to Washington, D.C. down the road and meet face-to-face once again with these elected leaders and also those appointed officials as well. Randy, could you maybe just share how important it is for uh, growers and members of the U.S. potato industry to be a part of this conversation and still be present and meet face-to-face with uh, individuals in Washington, D.C., especially on issues like climate it's critically important uh i i can't state that fact any more strongly look we've made the most out of the last 16 or 17 months during this uh, pandemic and um hell i didn't even know what zoom was until march 15th of uh, of last year and I've, i've gotten to be halfway proficient at it or or uh, any of the other platforms that are out there. But the, but the reality of it is we've made the most of it. But look, uh, the potato industry, it, its strength is the state members and, and the growers and uh, the processors in those states and the relationships that they've built over time, the trust and integrity and knowledge that they have built with their individual members, their two senators and their House members. That is the absolute strength of the organization uh, and Cam and Mike and the team at NPC does a great job of quarterbacking that effort. There is nothing like personal contact. We are in the, we're in that business. It's a service related business and renewing those contacts that the industry has and doing it face to face is, is really tantamount to our success. And I think by this fall uh, you'll see a lot more in-person meetings. It's going to be different. I, I want to warn everybody, the days of having, you know, a 200-person reception up in the uh, Longworth building at the House Ag Committee probably isn't in the cards in the fall. But I do think they'll they'll have um, limited size groups being able to go in and meet with members uh, and the administration. And frankly, a concern now is as much on uh, security as it is on anything uh, COVID-related, uh, just because of uh, uh, some of the here recently in, in the Capitol complex. So it will be a little more difficult to get in the buildings. It'll be a little bit more time consuming. Uh, patience is going to be required, but I think that you'll see a lot more in-person meetings come the fall, and that's a good thing for our industry and for agriculture as a whole. And Cam, what does it mean to you and your team now that uh, more of those face-to-face interactions can take place uh, between these elected officials and agency officials as well? 
Yeah, well, uh, Randy mentioned that yesterday was the first time in 15 months that I had uh, I, I put on my suit, and uh, and that that was a harrowing experience because I wasn't exactly sure where I left my dress socks and my ties and stuff. I had to put them on for you know, for over a year, uh, but I, I figured it out. And uh, we we went up with a group of folks and sat down in the Senate Ag Committee, and uh, we we had a meeting with Secretary Vilsack and uh, Senator Crapo and Senator Bennett uh, on very important issue, ag labor reform. And it, it was it, it, it was kind of uh, kind of shocking to sit in a room uh, with folks. Uh, we, we didn't need to have masks on, and we were talking across the table uh, to each other. And uh, it, it was incredibly refreshing. I was glad to be back there, but it was just uh, – it, it was really surprising how long we had been away from that effort. Um, and and I, I do think it's going to be different. The big uh, security fence is still, unfortunately, up around the Capitol. Uh, Randy's right. This is less going to be less about COVID and more about just the physical security of the of the facility and the members right now. And, and we're unfortunately in those times. Um, but I will highlight one, one, one thing that Randy mentioned was how important our interaction with the state organizations is. And that was really evidence. Now we were doing it virtually, uh, which is not my preference, but we made it work virtually. Um, we've, we've had more detailed interaction with all of the state association leaders over the past 15 months than we ever have before. Um, we sit down for an hour long session with them every single week um, and go through the important things that that we're working on and uh, and that they're working on and how we can help each other. That resulted in here, here's the aggregate number lane, and uh, it was actually the the Russell Group folks pulled this for us just a couple of weeks ago. In aggregate, the amount of relief that came to the potato industry since the pandemic started is $350 million just to the potato industry. And that's a combination of the, the direct payments, the direct relief program, CFAP1, CFAP2, uh, surplus commodity buys, the food box program, all of that together just for the potato industry is $350 million. And that is an absolutely historic amount of relief that has come to our industry and largely due to exactly what Randy said is all of the state associations and NPC being on the same page, being able to tell that story to our, uh, our House and Senate members and uh, working with USDA to ultimately get relief to growers who needed it. No, very important to have that voice and that relief, uh, keeping so many family businesses going as well. And uh, with that, of course, it's hard to, uh, to to look back and that the 2020 election, it feels like it was two years ago, three years ago at this <laughs> point. It really wasn't that long ago. And now we look to the 2022 election. Uh, Randy, as we look at the upcoming cycle, could you maybe give us an idea of how uh, this election could impact the upcoming farm bill? Uh, 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 the conversations around tax reform and concerns producers have uh, with being able to pass on the family business or farm to the next generation, and also how climate change conversations could be different depending on that uh, 2022 election. 
Yeah, Lane. Well, let's start with the election. And I think that, you know, right now the uh, House of Representatives, uh, uh, there's a couple of vacancies, but the Democrats have a, uh, I believe it's a four seat advantage right now. Uh, so it's as, if you look at the House and Senate combined, this is the narrowest margin of control that we've ever seen in the history of Congress. And so you can see why the administration and the Congress are struggling to get things done because it is so equally divided. 50-50 in the Senate, like I said, uh, about a four-seat advantage for the Democrats uh, in the House. The If you just look at historical trends going over the last 85 or 90 years, the uh, first midterm election in the first uh, term of a new president uh, whoever is con- whatever party's controlling the White House, they typically lose seats in the House of Representatives. You combine that historical trend with redistricting and the states that are picking up seats versus the states that are losing seats. And the South and the Southwest typically are picking seats up and the middle part of the country are losing seats. Uh, that bodes pretty well for Republicans putting aside uh, the issues of the day, just looking at trends and redistricting, uh, I think the Republicans are in a pretty good position to take uh, regain control of the House. If they do that, that would mean that G.T. Thompson of Pennsylvania would be the new chair. Uh, he's now currently the ranking member. And David Scott, who is currently the chair from Georgia, uh, would become um, the ranking member. So that that would be a significant change. The Senate, there are still far more Republicans up for re-election in uh, 2022 than Democrats, and they also have some open seats where members are retiring, like Rob Portman in Ohio and Roy Blunt in Missouri, um, and you've got uh, uh, Toomey's seat in Pennsylvania and Burr's seat in North Carolina, all open seats that they will have to defend. So Republicans have a bit of an uphill uh, battle to regain control of the Senate. It's certainly doable, but uh, they just have more seats to defend than Democrats. But as of right now, if you were just looking at historical trends and the redistricting, like I said, I, I think the Republicans are odds on favor to regain control uh, of the House. Heck, Montana, we're even picking up a seat. Unfortunately, people like mm-hmm. to move to this state. It's a horrible, horrible place to live. I, I keep telling people that. <laughs> uh, we're picking up a seat. It'll be interesting yep. how that uh, redistricting currently at the uh, committee here in Montana is working on that. Uh, so a very interesting. Cam, what, what, what are your thoughts on that upcoming election? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I think that that's kind of the the conventional wisdom here we're going to have to see how that that plays out um you know obviously whichever way it goes um i I think neither party is going to have you know right right now you've got the most evenly divided senate you can have 50 50 with the tie break the house is only four seats uh probably the narrowest randy I, i don't know if it's ever been more narrow you know on aggregate between the house and the senate who's controlling both the both chambers probably it couldn't be a heck of a lot closer um neither party is going to have the type of majority necessary to really run an agenda um you can you you're you're sort of you've got the committee chairmanships but it's almost like you're playing tug of war and that flag is just kind of dead center and it's just slightly moving off of center depending on uh, uh, the news of the day, but it doesn't move very much. And that makes it really tricky to do big things, Lane. Um, 
So you know, we're, we're going to have to see how that bears out. Um, it probably makes it easier for, um, for the Republicans to check the, the new administration's agenda if mm-hmm. they've got one or both chambers. But um, it, it makes it incredibly hard to pass major pieces of legislation. The, the numbers are just it's really tricky to get there. And one of the and just building on Cam's comments, so one of the and you mentioned this, Lane, one of the big pieces of legislation that the next session of Congress will have to do and they'll start hearings, um, you know, after the 22 election will be the, the 2023 Farm Bill. And as Cam said, regardless of whether the Democrats are in control or the House, it's going to be by the narrowest of margins. It's going to absolutely require bipartisanship. And it's absolutely going to require the agriculture community to form partnerships with the nutrition community and some of the environmental and conservation community where we uh, agree to kind of lock arms and help each other uh, get programs that are critical to each of the constituencies in order to pass, particularly in the House of Representatives, which with every census becomes more urban and more suburban and less rural in terms of its the membership of the house and you know we've got about 35 house districts that are primarily um rural and after this 2020 census and when they get done drawing these districts uh before the 2022 election that 35 is going to drop so you know you need 218 votes i'm not the smartest guy in the whole world but you don't get to 218 with only 35 or less rural districts without building coalitions that that will attract suburban and urban votes. Again, very important. And as you mentioned, these coalitions, these partnerships are going to be the way that uh, uh, the agriculture community does tell their story as our community does continue to shrink uh, percentage-wise here in the U.S. Uh, Cam and Randy, any last thoughts? As I know you both have a busy day today, any last thoughts as we talk about the uh, happenings in Washington, D.C., and looking uh, towards the upcoming elections? I, I just say, Lane, you know, Randy mentioned the importance of partnerships, and I think he's exactly right. We, we need to continue to build on the momentum of partnering with all of our great state associations that are out there. We're also uh, very pleased about the wonderful partnership we have with the Russell Group. The, Randy and his team, they got a lot of talented folks there, and um, they're uh, – um, they're, they're an incredibly valuable resource that we've relied on time and time again uh, through the last 15 months and, and before that and on into the future as we start looking at this farm bill. So really appreciate Randy taking the time to be on the on the podcast today. Uh, my pleasure, Cam. Uh, Lane, great being with you. I just encourage everyone to keep their eye on this infrastructure package that's being talked about. Lane, you mentioned taxes. Um, You know, uh, we're all in favor of infrastructure, and God knows we need it. Roads, bridges, ports, uh, the major infrastructure to move our product and and to to the domestic marketplace, the international marketplace. However, keep your eye on how it's paid for, potentially, because there uh, are some revenue uh, proposals out there that would radically change the estate tax, eliminate the stepped-up basis, change the capital gains tax rate by raising it and making it much more expensive in terms of generational wealth transfer. That's critically important for agriculture 
across the board. So keep your eyes on that. And that's definitely a topic uh, we will be covering here on the podcast, I know. And we'll continue to talk about all the issues impacting the nation's potato industry. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us here on the Eye of Potatoes podcast. Thanks, Lane. Thanks, Lane. That will do it for today's episode. I'm Lane Northland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the National Potato Council's Eye on Potatoes podcast with host Lane Nordland. For more information, visit nationalpotatocouncil.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.